Family Sunday at Elmhurst Church, first Sunday of the month. As always, we're going to close the service with a time of communion. It's a time also when we include the children in special ways in the worship, and we're grateful to the uh, ministries that feed our kids week by week, and also for the parents who are so supportive of the children's ministries at Elmhurst Church. Today we're going to wrap up a series of messages on the book of Esther, and we're going to close that series at a feast table. This is a table set for you here. It's the feast that Jesus himself provides, initiates, and we're going to celebrate it as we close. And we're going to celebrate it as the deacons bring the elements of communion to you. They'll bring a plate of bread and you'll pass it, take one, and if you'd hold that, please, until everyone has been served and then we're going to eat together. It's a symbol of unity. Even though one loaf is broken into many pieces, we are one body in Christ. And then in the same way, after the bread, they'll pass the cup. We will drink that together also as a symbol of our unity in Christ. And so that's where our worship will bring us this morning. On Wednesday, February 28, 5.38 p.m., our Jewish friends and neighbors will begin the annual celebration of Purim, a celebration that Greg talked about last Sunday, a remembrance of the great deliverance of the Jewish people from the hand of the Persians. The name of the feast, Purim, comes from the date on which it was selected by a roll of the dice. The casting of lots in Hebrew is called the Pur. So Feast of Purim, the Feast of the Casting of Lots, on that day scheduled a great and raucous celebration for what God did in delivering his people through this young woman named Esther and her cousin named Mordecai. The celebration has gone on for 2,500 years. It will go on again this year. And it all began with a letter written by Mordecai as recorded in Esther chapter 9, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, all the story of the book of Esther, right? And he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. One Jewish author says, if there's ever a day to let loose and just be Jewish, it is the Feast of Purim. So this month, the celebration actually begins the night before, Tuesday the 27th, and there it begins with a fast on Tuesday. So Orthodox Jews will refrain from food during that time in order to prepare themselves for the feast that comes the next day. The fast is a remembrance of Esther's fast that she observed with her people before she went in to plead with the king for the lives of her people and her own life. Then on Wednesday, Tuesday evening, the entire book of Esther is read by Orthodox Jewish people. On Wednesday, they come together and in a synagogue at a worship service, once again, the book of Esther is read, all 10 chapters. And this time, it takes place in a different way. Greg referred to this last week. 
One celebrant says that the Feast of Purim and what happens at that service is Jews gone totally berserk. In the congregation that morning, you'll see people in a variety of costumes. There will be princesses, there will be clowns, there will be Obi-Wan Kenobi with tassels on his garment. There will be people with noisemakers, comic book heroes and heroines, and a number of worshipers will bring noisemakers with them. The rabbi himself in one synagogue is dressed as a banana. If you go to worship that day, you will see things you never see in a worship setting otherwise. Big Bird with his skull costume. People looking like they never looked. There are some pictures on the internet that you can see of the congregation as it comes to worship. And these are the kind of costumes that people wear. It's all about celebration. It's all about dressing to have a good time. And sometimes the more outlandish the costume, the better the experience. As the story's being read to these costumed listeners, they use the noisemakers that they brought with them. We talked about this last week. In fact, we, we practiced it, right? Because every time Greg said the word Haman, you... Boom, yes. Well, uh, you know, in a Jewish congregation, we just have to do more than that. They bring noisemakers as well as their voices. In fact, one gentleman brings his tuba to the synagogue every time. And every time you hear the name Haman, this raucous noise breaks out. It's, it's, it's as though they want to blot his name from memory. As though this person, Haman, who threatened the destruction of the Jewish people, is not fit to be heard or remembered in our world. Further observance of the day includes giving of gifts to each other, and it includes giving gifts to the poor. Here's how one person describes the scene. He says, there are a hundred hands out asking for money, because the rule is, get this rule, on Purim, if they put out your hand, you give. You have to put something in it. There are always those precious souls who have a list of needy families in hand. They stand at the synagogue or go door to door collecting thousands of dollars to help needy families pay the rent, put food in their fridges. Side streets are gridlocked. Everyone's out delivering packages of food and treats to all their friends and neighbors as well as to complete strangers. It is a celebration the likes of which most of us would never experience. Part of celebrating, of course, is food, enjoying things that you don't enjoy at other times in the year. And on many Jewish tables, you'll find a sweet, a triangular cookie known as a hamantaschen. Hamantaschen, those of you who have no German, no German, Haman's ears. So while they're munching these cookies, it is as though they are destroying the very person who wanted to destroy them. It is their way of celebrating. I had a hamantaschen Friday. They're actually quite good. Purim is 24 hours of unrestrained celebration. All of it designed to remember what was agreed on in Esther chapter 9 at verse 26. Mordecai writes these words. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. 
These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. This is the story of the book of Esther. It's going to be read and celebrated again here in Elmhurst and around the world by observant Jews in about three weeks. It is a story that moves from feasting to fasting to feasting and fasting and feasting. It is a story that begins with a king, Xerxes, who rules from Asia to Europe and Africa, saying to all his provinces, we're going to have a party six months long, the best food, the best wine. I will show you how rich I am and how important I am. And they celebrated for six months. It is a feast at which he asks his queen, Vashti, to appear before the guests, and she says, I'm not going to do that for you. And he says, you are no longer my queen. He has a beauty pageant, chooses another queen, a young Jewish lady by the name of Esther, who has a cousin Mordecai. Esther becomes queen at a time when the Jewish people are threatened by Haman, the enemy of the Jews, who has his own axe to grind with the Jewish people that goes back 500 and 1,000 years. It's though he's carrying on a tradition of hatred and ethnic cleansing that has been part of his people as long as he can remember. Esther hears of the plot, it is foiled. She says to her people, Fast with me so that when I plead for your life before the king, he will listen and receive me. So the feast becomes a fast. They fast, and God, through an extraordinary series of events, reverses the tables so that Haman ultimately is executed and the people he chose to annihilate prevail. 75,000 Persians, says the word of God, lose their lives as God's people rise up with the permission of King Xerxes and destroy the very people who had threatened to annihilate them. And so the fast gave way to the feast. Mordecai says, we are going to throw a feast called Purim, the day on which these things took place. And it is going to be celebrated by us today. And as long as there are a Jewish people, we will remember this day. And so indeed they have. Feasting and fasting, preparation and celebration. And it goes on in the Jewish community to this very day. Now our lead pastor, Pastor Greg, has invited and encouraged us as a congregation to enter a pattern of fasting and feasting in an appropriate and biblical sense. And hundreds of members of our congregation have responded by saying, yes, on a Wednesday I will set aside the time that I usually eat, maybe breakfast, maybe lunch, maybe supper, maybe all three. I will set aside that time, and instead of giving in to the pangs of hunger that usually happen around that time, when I really am looking for something to eat, I'm going to really be looking for the presence of God in my life and in my church. And Greg has asked that during that fast, we would plead with God that he might provide, as he always has, for the life of this congregation, the kind of leadership that can come alongside Greg, senior leadership team, elders and deacons, and continue to build this body of faith in obedience to Jesus Christ 
to ask that God would continue to pour his blessing on this place, specifically at a time when we're seeking others to come alongside and help us move where God wants to take us. So during that time, my appetite for food is set aside for an appetite for the presence and guidance of God. And when I usually head for the refrigerator, I might bow my head in prayer. Or I might turn to the word of God and simply say, God, you know how much I want to eat right now. Even more, I am asking you, I'm pleading with you, God. Would you provide for Elmhurst Church? Would you not take your hand of blessing from us? Would you hear us as we, an entire people, plead with you for the welfare of your people? And if we'll do that on a Wednesday, then on Sunday, Pastor Greg has said, we ought to celebrate God. This should be celebration day. You know, there should be kids on stage singing. There should be a congregation in joy. There were moments this morning in worship when I just caught that image of celebration. The, the first song we sang, right? Uh, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. There's an image in that song from the book of Revelation that is all about celebration. It says, casting down our golden crowns. It's from the book of Revelation. It's the moment when any of us who have received any award, a crown, Medal of Honor, Most Valuable Player. We take all the stuff that's ever been given to us in celebration of who we are and we lay it at the feet of Jesus and we say, nothing I have ever done, nothing I will ever be compares to who you are, what you've done, and what you've done for me. All the trophies, all the accolades, all the praise to you, Jesus, to you. That is celebration. I love that. I love the song the kids sang this morning, the moment when it's winter, but I know that spring is coming. Don't you love that line? I love that. That refreshes my frozen Illinois soul. I mean, the end will come. Thank God for that. These moments when in the presence of God, in our singing, in our reading, in our praying, we understand again more deeply what God has done for us. This should be celebration day. Now, usually, you know, when we celebrate, I was raised in a Christian Reformed community when it was Communion Sunday, dark suits, ties for the guys, ladies' dress, everything is so solemn and so serious. And I understand that. I mean, that part of that is woven into my being because it, it has to do with the body and blood of Jesus given for my sin. And how can you remember that without this deep, somber, serious sense about it? But there is something in me and even in the pattern of God's word that says, this is more than somber, serious. This is celebration. This is a smile on my face when I think that it is what Jesus, amen, it is what Jesus does for me that changes my life, that gives me forgiveness, that makes me the person by the grace of God that I am. And there are moments at this feast when it should be said and sung and remembered with a smile and with a deep sense of celebration. So how do you get from the story of Esther to Elmhurst in 2018? How do you get from this feasting, fasting, feasting to this moment? Well, I think there are two words in the letter that Mordecai wrote to the Jewish community establishing these feasts that help us bridge that gap. Look at what he says in Exodus chapter 9, verse 30. Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of, now these two words, words of goodwill and assurance. Goodwill and assurance. 
In the Hebrew language, some of you will know the meaning of this word. The word for goodwill is shalom. So the first thing Mordecai says is, I am going to bring you shalom. Shalom is peace, this settled relationship with God, this world in which things are as they should be. The right triumphs, the wrong is eliminated, and God's people are exalted to the place that they belong. It is the world in which God rules and God's people, God's people are blessed under his rule. So, says Mordecai, I will bring that to you and let this be a feast of shalom. Now, I want you to jump 500 years after Mordecai and I want you to move to the book of Ephesians written by a man named Paul. And Paul is thinking about Jewish people, Mordecai's people, and Gentile people, Xerxes' people. And he is saying that some of you Gentiles are going to believe the same thing you Jews do, and then there's going to be trouble because there's always been trouble between Gentiles and Jews. But something has been done about that, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. He writes, At one time you Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Separate from Christ. Excluded from citizenship in Israel foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now, he says, you Gentile foreigners in Christ Jesus who were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he is our shalom. He is our peace who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What keeps you apart as a Jewish race and a Christian people is the cross of Jesus Christ that brings us together. And whether Jew or Gentile in Christ, we are one and we are at peace. It's as though the New Testament is saying, if you stop reading the Bible at the book of Esther, you haven't read far enough. There is a greater peace, a better peace that comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Mordecai can't proclaim peace only Jesus is our peace. And says Mordecai, this letter is a letter of assurance. The Hebrew word amet, which also means truth. One of the translations says words of peace and truth. Truth is the faithfulness to reality. It is things that truly are. Take it to the bank. It is so you can be confident. He says, Mordecai says, you can be safe. You are secure. It is the truth because the evil plot of someone who wants to destroy you has in fact been destroyed. It has come to nothing. That is the truth, says Mordecai. Now jump again 500 years after Mordecai and sit with Jesus and his followers just the night before he's... Uh, to be betrayed and to give his, give his life for us before his crucifixion. And he says to them, you know, guys, um, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I'd have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And look, if I go prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me so that you can be where I am. And look, if it were not so, I would have told you. You know the way to the place I'm going. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. 
Mordecai says, these are words of truth. Jesus said, no, not exactly. I am the truth. The reality, the ultimate reality, the truth is not truth until it leads us to Jesus. He's the only one who brings deliverance. He's the only one who brings hope. He's the only one who provides a path to peace and the hope of life to come. That is the truth. And again, if you stop your Bible reading at the book of Esther and it doesn't take you to the story of, re, uh, the story of Jesus, you stopped reading too soon. Every truth is partial truth until it brings you to the truth, the person of Jesus. So every Sunday is an opportunity to celebrate peace and truth. How do you do that? So much of our life, one author says 98% of it, is occupied by what we might describe as trivial. Now, I know it's not trivial, but I mean, it's just the pattern that goes on and on and on, and it doesn't always mean everything to us. We go to work, we come home from work, we sit down at the table, we work for a paycheck. Six days a week, we do the chores that eat up our life, right? Make the phone calls, answer the emails, stay in touch with people, shop for groceries, get to the gym, spend time at the gym watching the grandkids and the kids doing their sports activities. We fill empty hours with video and entertainment. Some of us are living our life through a cell phone. It goes on and on and on and on, day after day after day. Sunday calls for more than that. It calls for better than that. It's not that those things are bad. I mean, it's a part of what life is. But the fact is that Sunday can be so much more. It deserves to have a place of celebration of God's peace and truth in our world and in our life. And I simply want to say, if you leave Sunday more worn out than you came into Sunday, either you are on the church staff or you're spending that day in a day that God never intended for you. He wants something better for you than that. He'd have a day in which not only are you with others in his presence, but that lifts your spirit and that brings you to the fullness of Jesus. And you walk out of a place like this and into the next hours for the rest of this day, no matter how you spend it, in which you say the peace of Jesus is my peace and the truth of Jesus is my truth. And that refreshes me and that carries me. And I'm going to find a way today spending it maybe in ways I don't spend other Sundays other days, living in and celebrating the work of Jesus Christ. Today is a celebration of peace and truth in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let me ask the elders to meet me at the table of our Lord.